Patrick Gasol is an autistic and ADHD licensed clinical mental health and addictions therapist in Asheville, North Carolina. He is the owner of All Things Private Practice and Resilient Mind Counseling. Patrick works as a private practice coach and strategist and is also a group practice owner, motivational speaker, international retreat planner, the host of All Things Private Practice podcast, and co-host of Divergent Conversations podcast. His work has helped and inspired thousands of mental health professionals to take risks, start and grow their businesses, and invest in themselves. He has been featured on The Private Practice Startup, Abundance Practice Building, Therapy Reimagined, Not Your Typical Psychotherapist, Selling the Couch, and Modern Therapist. Patrick is a passionate advocate for reducing shame and stigma of mental health, as well as imposter syndrome. Patrick helps mental health entrepreneurs break the mold, work through their fears and insecurities, and to embrace their authenticity. He loves good coffee, craft beer, playing soccer, and traveling the world. Doubt yourself, do it anyway has become his official motto. Hi, I'm Casey, and right here beside me is Kelsey. We are licensed professional counselors, mothers, entrepreneurs, oh, and besties. We know firsthand what it's like to wake up one day and think, how in the heck did I wind up here? Through our own journeys of self-discovery, we found that joy is something that has to be pursued through internal work. Now we are on a mission to help women from all walks of life understand themselves more so they can have real lasting joy. Join us every Thursday to hear fun and insightful interviews with experts who can point you toward self-discovery and fulfillment. Welcome to the show. Today we have Patrick, who you already know about because I've told you about in his bio. But Patrick, I'm wondering just if you would tell us just a little bit about yourself from your own self. Yeah, I'm Patrick Casal. I am a licensed clinical mental health therapist and addiction specialist here in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm a group practice owner. I am also the owner of All Things Private Practice, the podcast host of All Things Private Practice, the co-host of the Divergent Conversations podcast, a retreat host, and a coach and consultant for businesses and entrepreneurs, mainly specializing and focusing on like working through self-doubt, insecurity, imposter syndrome, the stuff that we don't talk about a lot as therapists and business owners, the, the messy psychological mindset stuff. I think that stuff gets overlooked a lot of the time. And it's just like, pictures of people's feet up at the beach and hey, being a small business owner is so luxurious and so easy. And how come you're not like crushing it like me? Yeah. You know what? Listen, I'm not judging, but one of my biggest pet peeves is people who take pictures of their feet at the beach. Yeah. Or yeah, I'm not trying to see that shit. Like leave it for only fans or something like that. <laughs> Why is that something that I'm going to look at and be like, damn, like at least I could see myself there. I don't (laughs) get it. I don't want to see your feet. I don't just take, take your feet out. Let me see the ocean. Fine. But I don't, I just don't understand that. I've never understood that. It drives me absolutely crazy. (laughs) That makes two of us. Yeah. My idea of relaxation is certainly not like laying on the beach for hours at a time. Like I have way too much sensory stuff going on. I'm like, Okay, I have sand in my feet. I'm hot. I'm uncomfortable. Like it's loud. It's, I, I just don't want to do it. So it's not my idea of a good time. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about that. And maybe the- can I ask a question? What is your idea of a, a good time? Obviously, it's not the beach, but <laughs> <I'm curious. laughs> you know, that's like the worst thing you could say to somebody, right? 
Tell me your idea of a good time. Well, not <laughs> not in that context, but you know what I'm saying. Because you said, like, the beach is, is absolutely no. not going to do it for me. So, like, my idea of ideal traveling and, and having a good time is, like, going through small towns and villages in Europe, eating the food, meeting the people, experiencing the culture, really immersing myself in those environments. I am not the type of human being who can, like, sit at a resort and relax, like, that to me sounds like a nightmare. Okay. And if you're like, let's go to an all inclusive for five days and just lay out on the beach, I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to that. I'll, I'll pass. So, well, um, and I was referring to the sensory things. Like, just, <laughs> well, know. I figured that would be a good segue right oh, into that. Okay. Okay. Great segue. I am 37 years old as of last week, which feels like super old to me now. And I got diagnosed as autistic and ADHD late in life. Probably got diagnosed as autistic at 35 and ADHD maybe 30 years old. And so sensory stuff is just, you know, something I really struggle with. And the beach for me is like sensory hell because it's like screaming kids and hot temperatures and sand and all the things that just bother me. So like that's probably a big part of why I don't enjoy beach vacations. Mm -hmm. I totally get that. Yeah. I'm also curious, how did the evaluation piece for autism, how did that come about? Like, were you struggling with something and thought, I need to figure this out? Or what happened? Yeah. So what essentially happened is like, I think young cishet white boys and ADHD seem to be like pretty much hand in hand, right? Like it's like, oh, you were unruly or disruptive or really rambunctious, which are all like unbelievably inaccurate stereotypes. But seemingly nonetheless, like I didn't have much of an issue when I got my ADHD diagnosis. I was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I, I, I'm scattered. I, I have all these big ideas. I, I often like don't circle back to them. That definitely made a lot of sense a couple of years ago. But what pushed me to pursue the autism diagnosis was just like, doing deeper and deeper work on neurodiversity and neurodivergence and and just really thinking about like my struggle socially mainly because like I think a lot of autistic people have this similar experience of like feeling like you've never fully landed, you've never fully arrived. And when you're in social situations, it's so hard because like my instinct is not to make eye contact. My instinct is to like talk like the way I'm talking right now, um, maybe be looking over here the whole time. But when you're masking and you're constantly like mimicking behavior socially to fit in where whether it's head nodding or direct eye contact or body language movement or like even rehearsing conversations in your head to say like i'm going to say this thing when this thing is said so i can like fit in and adapt and assimilate but then there's just this massive disconnection feeling of loneliness and that was constantly in my life and i just kept thinking like what is happening? Like, what is wrong with me where I feel like people really care about me, but I can't take it in. I can't absorb it. I don't feel it. And someone, one of my good friends was like, I think you should probably like go get just assessed for autism. And my own ableism immediately kicked in. And I was like, I'm not autistic. Like I was using like functional language, like I'm high functioning. I own two businesses, um, blah, 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 blah. And you know, once I got the diagnosis, my wife was like, yeah, no shit. Like, I could have told you this five <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Okay. So there's several reasons that I think that this is fascinating. One is that knowing your your own struggles socially in all the things that you just described, 
but still putting yourself out there as a business owner, which requires interaction. It requires a lot of conflict resolution, uncomfortable conversations, all of these things. As a podcast host, as a retreat, like you remind me of myself in some ways because I will go after and do absolutely everything that I'm scared to death or don't want to do. And you're putting yourself in the position to do all of these things, even though it's things that you probably don't necessarily want to do. Yeah. It comes with a great cost too, which I think is often unspoken about. So like hosting a retreat, you know, absorbing all of this energy from hosting and attuning and socializing and and all of the things that come with it will be pretty debilitating to my system to the point of like, I will almost have to hibernate for like 30 days to be able to do something else. Otherwise, I'll go into like major burnout mode. But I do enjoy so many aspects of it. So it's it really is this double-edged sword of like, as an entrepreneur, creating the things that we often need or want in our lives, but also at the same time, acknowledging that there's a massive cost to the things that I do because of the way my energy kind of fluctuates and struggles in certain situations. Yeah. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. When you were originally speaking, I was thinking, man, that must take a lot of energy when he has to put himself out there in a retreat or he has to do a podcast or whatever it is. It might take a lot of energy and feeling that exhaustion. So I'm glad you spoke on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, just for someone that's non-neurodivergent, I mean, I, I guess for myself, that's me. You know, every year we do Meet You in Kentucky and I love it. Like there's a lot of things I love about it, but don't talk to me for at least a week afterward. I don't, you know, I I can't, I, I get sick. I have to sleep. So I can't even imagine. Why do you do it? You know, I think there's a big part of me that really enjoys the connection piece and the experience piece. Like I'm autistic ADHD. So the ADHD side of me is always like experiences, stimulation, like new ideas. And the autistic side's like, can you please stop? Like I, I need a break. So it's like this constant tug of war. But I love the connection piece and I love seeing people step out of their comfort zones. I love the component where like we're at a retreat and people maybe have never traveled out of the country before and they took this risk, traveled to Ireland by themselves. And it's a risk, right? Financially, you're stepping away from your day job, you're stepping into this new environment. And I love seeing people drop in and connect and like, start to build relationships and start to experience like these cool things that that life has to offer. And you almost see a completely different side of them once they're able to relax and kind of just settle and ground. And for me, that feels really transformative. And it also feels really powerful. And I've always been a really good connector. And I've always been a great planner. And I I love being able to see that. And I also just really do a great job of helping people be themselves. So if I can show up as authentically as I can be, and I can say, hey, I'm struggling. Like, hey, I may step away from the group at times because my energy or I might just feel sensory overwhelm or socially overwhelmed in general. It gives permission to other people to do the same. And all of a sudden, you start to see a much more authentic experience come together And you start to see people really start to step out of their comfort zones and embrace their individuality. And it really feels powerful to me. You said that you felt this huge sense of like loneliness and that kind of was where the beginning of the journey for your diagnosis started. 
how did you heal that constant feeling of loneliness or maybe some listeners that experienced that? Yeah, I don't know if you ever fully heal that feeling because for most neurodivergent people, especially autistic people, that is a big part of the ex- the existence is just this feeling of disconnection, loneliness, isolation, and I don't belong here. So what I've really tried hard to do post-diagnosis, because I always talk about the grief relief process of like grief of this is lifelong, this isn't going to change. I wish I would have known earlier in life, it would have been easier versus relief of finally, I have something to make sense of it all. And I think for autistic people, that's what we're looking for is there's such a deeply analytical mind that you want to know why. And that is agonizing when you're just like searching and searching and searching existentially of like, what the hell is happening here? To finally have an answer and validation, it's like, okay, this is still really hard, but at least I can put a name to it. And at least I can have a good sense of understanding as to why I experience the world the way that I do. So I think that helps quite a bit. And then also like find a neurodivergent affirmative therapist and like get some support for yourself, have someone who deeply understands that world because that's a big component too. And I think that like the more often I look at my friend group, I recognize that most of them are on some sort of neurodiversity spectrum. And it makes a lot of sense why because you know there's not as much pressure to show up socially a certain way so it makes connecting a bit easier yeah i'm just thinking about people who struggle with loneliness and that lack of connection but also combine that with self doubt that journey of trying to figure out who am i i know that sounds really stupid but you know what i'm saying like who am i, I, I am i Am I this? Am I that? I think so many people go on that journey. And and I even see it in my job, like in the consulting. And I'm sure you do too, Patrick. Like these therapists turned business owners, but they haven't really figured out who they are in that space yet. And that lack of confidence and that self-doubt, it it limits them. And so I'm curious, what are some of the things that you do when you're working with people? Do you try to elicit confidence? Do you try to encourage them and tell them confidence will come? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense why therapists have a lot of self-doubt when it comes to entrepreneurship, right? Because like, I think I'm being generous if I say like 97% of therapists don't have any business training or experience and like grad school did not prepare us to be business owners for the most part. I don't want to say that as a blanket statement because I know there are some that are really doing a great job. But the reality is that we don't have that experience. So everything is everything feels like a bit more intense, I think. And it, it's so easy to like be like, I don't know how to run a business. I don't know how to do this. I can't talk about money. Are you tired of running to the lobby to see if your next appointment has arrived? Would you like a more discreet, stress-free way for your clients to check in? Take a deep breath. The receptionist for iPad empowers your practice to create a zen-like check-in experience. This episode is sponsored by the receptionist for iPad. It's the highest rated digital check-in software for therapy and behavioral health offices used by thousands of practitioners across the country. The Receptionist for iPad is a simple, inexpensive way to allow your clients to discreetly check in to notify providers of a patient's arrival 
and to ensure your front lobby is stress-free. The software sends an immediate notification to the therapist when a client checks in and can even ask if any patient information has changed since their last visit. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com besties. And when you do, you'll also get your first month free when you sign up. I think when you're able to step out of your comfort zone and you can anchor into that and you can kind of anchor in, like I can remember leaving my community mental health job in 2017 and it was really scary. And I had thought about it for years, you know, like I had really thought about it as a, as a viable option, but I kept telling myself, like, you don't know how to run a private practice though. Like you've never done it. You don't know how, what if people don't call you? What if people don't pay you all the things that go through our heads And once I finally made that decision and stepped into that space, that was a risk, right? Like that's stepping out of my comfort zone. That's embracing the unknown. And that for me was the biggest pivot point in my trajectory in all of this is like doing the things that you're uncomfortable with and recognizing that it is totally normal to feel afraid, overwhelmed, scared, anxious, et cetera, about the unknown. But what we don't want it to do is be so debilitating, so paralyzing that we never take action. And the realization that like stepping into that pathway, it's almost like following a compass, following like the actual route that you should be taking when you feel afraid or scared or overwhelmed. And the more risk we can take, the more we can step out of our comfort zone, the more we grow, the more we can say, okay, I'm going to start a coaching program or a podcast or host a summit or a retreat or whatever. And that same feeling comes up, that self-doubt, that insecurity, that imposter syndrome, that perfectionism. Then you can anchor into like, I've done this before. I know what it's like to feel this way. And I did it anyway. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it does mean that when these feelings come up, I can move through them and past them. I don't have to let them control how I move forward. And ultimately, once you start seeing like people embrace that mentality, and anchor into like risk-taking and stepping out of our comfort zones. We tell our clients all the time, you don't grow in places of like being comfortable and complicit. We need to take our own advice. And ultimately, I think that leads to growing as entrepreneurs, as business owners, as people, as therapists. And that's why for me, the power of travel is so important because that in itself is the epitome of stepping out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Also, I think there's a part of that. I know I try to to do in my professional world, but also personally with my children and things is empowering people to be problem solvers and to think that there are multiple solutions for any given problem. And I'll pick on Kelsey as an example. I am not certified. I do not have the credentials to diagnose ADHD, but Kelsey has ADHD. I know she does. I can see the struggle and it it just is what it is. Knowing like your limitations, where I see the points like where you get hung up and being able to be like, oh, okay, for example, she is now doing all of our new clinical onboarding training. So all of the therapists, anyone that's clinical, that's hired, she puts them through an onboarding program. She's great at that. I knew what was going to be her downfall, though, and that was going to be the preparation of the documents, like creating all of the forms and like the Uh presentation. And as she was working on it, I just waited for it to happen. And she comes and she's like, can you look at this presentation? And it looked really good. 
except there were no words. <laughs> like all the words, you know, it's like the the stock presentation where it's all in Latin or something. And so like the design and all the colors and everything was great. But I was like, yeah, <laughs> that looks really good. Where's the words? She's like, well, I I can't. I haven't figured those out yet. I'm going to have to think. And I, I needed knew. to make sure in my, my brain, I needed to make sure that it was how I needed it to be before I could move forward with the next task. See, I'm the opposite. Okay. I would have written all the words first that whatever. And so I automatically, I was like, okay, this is going to be a big pain point for her. She is never going to do this. Like this is never going to get done. And so I was like, hey, Kelsey, you know, we have this thing that we use a lot in our group practice. It's called chat GPT. Um, just go let AI write it for you. Oh my gosh, she had that thing done so fast. <laughs> but just like looking at the things that we know we struggle with or know we're going to struggle with and, and creating a workaround. Like pivoting. Yeah. Pivoting to figure it out. Jenny, shoot, I forgot her last name. She read the book called Pivot. I met her up in uh, New Jersey with Mike. And that's what it's all about is like, okay, how are we going to pivot here, pivot here and try to teach the kids like, oh, this isn't what you wanted. Okay. Instead of throwing a fit and having a tantrum, let's figure out how we can get it or how we can get something else that's just as good. But I think problem solving is definitely something I'm seeing a lack of problem solving ability more and more and more. Yeah, I think we need to be able to pivot and adapt as business owners all the time. And that's why I think it's so important to also like highlight failure and normalize failure and mistake making because so often we get into that perfectionism mode, right? Where it's like, I can't figure out the right words to put on the page. And in reality, like you said, Casey, it's like, but if you get the words out, then you can revise it, then you can edit it, then you can improve it over time. And that at least it is available and live opposed to like non-existent. And that so often happens with therapists that I work with who are like, I have my psych today ready, I have my website ready, but I cannot put it out to the world because it's not perfect. Well, guess what? It's never going to be perfect. And the reality is like a live living website that people can find is better than one that is non-existent. And ultimately, the website copy can be edited and edited and edited and improved over time, and it will never be perfect, but it will change consistently. And I think about it as like a live living document. The same thing goes with just normalizing failure. Like It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to fail at things that we don't know and when we're unfamiliar with the process. And that's when we learn and we adapt and we pivot and we change how we go about it the next time. I know this sounds ridiculous, but I honestly believe that my biggest successes in the business world have been a direct result of all of my failures. And I actually encourage my team to fail. We do it a lot because that informs our direction. Like I'll tell Emily, you know, hey, we're hiring three therapists. We probably want to do some Google ads. We've done them before. Didn't work. We can try them again with a new guy. And she's like, well, I mean, that's a lot of money. I said, no, it's an investment. If it doesn't work, we'll do something else. We we can't be so rigid with, we have to be smart, but we can't be so rigid in a way that causes us to be afraid to try. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that that's a lesson that not only 
helps in entrepreneurship, but also just in parenting and in relationships. You know, we've had situations together where we're having some kind of, there's some kind of barrier and I'm like, this is what I need. And she's like, okay, this is what I can do. And then we try it and see if it works. And if it works, that's great. And if it doesn't, then we try something else. But people get so hung up on, they just have to get it right the first time. I think it speaks to the core fear of failure, like he's saying, and it's like these small whispers of self-doubt, like Mm -hmm. somebody's going to look at this and hate it. Maybe I misspelled something. That's me to the core. I'm a overthinker at heart. Every time we get done with the podcast, I was like, did I sound dumb? Did I sound dumb? Yeah. Did I sound dumb? I just want choker. (laughs) Like, even if you did, I mean, it's already recorded, so... (laughs) And ultimately, you know, like I think that so much of ourselves are put into our creation. So there is a lot of there's a level of vulnerability, right, with putting stuff out to the world. But the only way to fight through that vulnerability and that insecurity is to do it. And that's kind of been my mentality. And that's why I've started to coin that phrase of like, doubt yourself, do it anyway, because it's okay to doubt yourself. It's okay to question these things, but do not let that prevent you from moving forward. Because ultimately, we have so many great ideas, but if they live up here and they never get out to the world, then somebody else is going to adapt them and use them for their own purposes. And it's just like a spelling error, grammatical errors. I almost coach people to say, like, just put it out there with the spelling errors on your website. Because ultimately, I want you to get more and more comfortable being like, okay, the world is still spinning and it's okay. Like, it's it's absolutely okay for me to make a mistake and I can always go back and edit it and improve it over time. Yeah. You got any follow-up thoughts? No, I really enjoy this conversation. This is a great conversation. Has Emily reached out to you yet about Kentucky? We were just talking to her about um, Meet You in Kentucky, and I think she's sending out those emails today. But I, I really hope that you're able to participate in that. I think that there's so much good conversation, especially just around this self-doubt. Like, this is just such a power player. And, and it comes up weekly in, like, your uh, groups and all everything. All the time. All the time. I don't know. I tell I tell people a lot. I'm like, listen, it what they're going through is terrible, and I hate it for them. Um, I'm like, you're just, you're just building calluses. Like it's going to get easier. It just takes these failures and these slip ups to get to a point where not that you're not going to have them anymore because you're probably going to have more and more and more, the more risk you take, but it's just, they're not going to hurt as bad. They're not going to feel it. It's so true. And I tell people that all the time they ask me about like, does imposter syndrome and self-doubt ever go away? And the answer is no, it doesn't ever go away. But instead of steering the car, it's maybe in the back seat, and it's like maybe throwing a temper tantrum at times, but you're able to zone it out. You're able to turn your music up. You're able to like disconnect from it. The voice isn't as mean. It's, it, it just gets a little bit less over time the more you continue to put yourself out there. And I think that's really the important takeaway is like just continue to do it, even when it's really freaking hard. But ultimately, I think that like all the power is taken away from it when you put it out to the world and you stop letting it just live inside of your head. Because once you put it out there, you're like, oh, okay. Like now it's not so scary. It's not so big. It's not so overwhelming. Yeah. Well, I just really appreciate all of your your stories and your words and your official motto Mm -hmm. because I think that that's just something that everyone needs to be reminded of all the time. And so, We really appreciate it. And we hope that you are able to participate in the conference because I know people are going to love to hear more about this. 
this has been great and we appreciate you so much. Yeah. Thank you're you very welcome. On. And if you do think you're ADHD, you should check out the Divergent Conversations podcast. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about. If you're enjoying our podcast and would like to hear more from us, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast so we can keep making great content. Talk to you later, besties.